What can baseball tell us about politics? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Thomas Bunting. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Thomas Bunting. Thomas is an associate professor of political science in the social sciences department at Shawnee State University and the coordinator of the political science major. He has taught classes on national government, Appalachian politics, ancient political theory, sport and politics, research methods, constitutional law, and more. He has written many things, including his book, Democracy at the Ballpark, Sport, Spectatorship, and Politics. That will inform the basis of our conversation today. Thomas, welcome to The Curious Task. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited uh, to have this conversation. And it's great to have you on. So our question today is, what can baseball tell us about politics? And to explore that, we're essentially going to tour through the broad strokes of of your book. But first, I kind of wanted to start on on a slightly personal note. I just was curious... What was the main inspiration for you to make the connection between baseball politics? You know, in the intro of your book, you talk about uh, the general thought process of what you think we can we can pull from this. But I'd like to know just a little bit more about is this over time this thought developed? Did you catch a baseball at a stadium and have a eureka? Like what what really triggered this in your mind? Yeah, I mean, it's a great exercise in nominative determinism, right? With my name Bunting. Um, So there's that. Uh, I, I think. You know, it's it's maybe a little bit more um, pointed in the book, but it's it's kind of an issue I had with democratic theory and these conversations that happen in democratic theory and thinking like, could I explain this to my grandparents in a way that they would understand? Right. Would this sound like politics to them? Um, I didn't really come from an academic background. And so, you know, a lot of times when we study politics for years and years, We think that everyone else also cares a great deal about formal politics when a lot of people don't, right? So a lot of people actually encounter politics more in their everyday lives through things like baseball and sport. So it was kind of, for me, a project that I thought people I grew up with would be able to understand. Great. And on and on that exact note, I want to jump from there into a quote from the intro of your book, which is you say that the, the main argument that you advance in the book is that our politics and our everyday pastimes are not separate. So right right from there, can, can you just explain what that is and how that sort of, in your mind, translated to really the, the plan of the book and how you structured your thought process? Yeah, I mean, I think you see baseball interacting with politics and you see politics in baseball. And in a lot of ways, this is like, an extremely ancient insight and very obvious to a lot of other people, right? So if you were to tell, you know, ancient Greeks that sport is political, fundamentally, they would be like, well, yeah, of course. Um, But it's kind of something that is more ignored in these kind of conversations we have in democratic theory. So this was an attempt to show how baseball can shape politics and how politics sometimes shapes baseball as well. So so today, as in your book, uh, as we move forward, like, is is it fair to sum it up is that we're basically uh, exploring baseball as a metaphor for democratic politics, but that baseball not only is almost like a metaphor for it, but that can also sort of teach us things about it as well as our politics. 
Yeah, absolutely. You put that better than I can. Uh, so thank you very much. And I think, yeah, the, the other key angle, which I'm sure we'll talk about is spectatorship, right? So baseball, this book is not taking, um, is not looking primarily at players, games, things like that. It's thinking about fans and the way that fans actually shape the game. So then let's jump right into that then, because the first section of your book does take you know, take on spectatorship in that discussion. So in this chapter, you know, you basically talk about spectatorship itself, but why it matters. But right at the front, you immediately establish that the idea of spectatorship and baseball, you establish it as something that should be seen as always somewhat political, even if it isn't overtly steeped in it. Like, you know, we can, for instance, get to the discussion of George Bush uh, throwing a baseball shortly after 9-11. You know, one can say, okay, well, you know, let's talk about political connection there. But one thing that really jumped out at me is this whole, even if it doesn't overtly seem like it, there's always somewhat of a political there. Can you just explain that thought of a little more as our jumping off point here? Yeah, so I think the best way to explain that is to use the example of integration, right? So before Jackie Robinson, probably most fans would not necessarily think that they were watching something political when they watched, you know, 18 white men playing baseball. But my my argument is basically that is political as well, right? It's not just that Jackie Robinson breaking the color line is a moment of politics. It's that those politics were always latent. So that... That's kind of how I think about that. And to further that, I'd also like to, well, not only further that point, but sort of circle back something you really quickly mentioned that I didn't want to talk about today. So you made the point earlier, and of course you make the point in this chapter as well on the spectatorship that, you know, athletes and sports in general in history have always been political to some degree. I mean, you kind of just explained what you meant there with the 18 white men playing baseball, but um can you just explain, like, obviously there's more in the book, and I always say that to our listeners when we do a sort of a book-based episode. Ever encourage everyone to check it out and read the details there because we can't have poor Thomas basically read everything word for word back to us on a podcast. But but just generally speaking, for especially for those unfamiliar with that sort of historical angle too, because most people do think back to sports in the 1900s really here, but even further back, can you talk a bit about historically what you mean that uh, athletics and sports are, are political? Yeah, so I guess maybe one of my favorite examples when thinking about this is time. So, you know, it's the year 2022, which is in reference to, you know, Christ. And in the ancient world, clearly they kept time differently, right? Well, how did they keep time? Their calendars were slightly unbalanced. So every four years, they would hold the Olympics, which would occur in kind of a space out of time, right? Days that were just meant to even out the calendar. And if someone was to say, you know, a marker of something that happened, they would say, oh, this was five years after so-and-so uh, won the Pancration, right? So right. like, they're literally marking time based on these athletic events. Like they are a huge cultural, political phenomenon, right? They sometimes have stories about, you know, ceasefires and wars so that the games can unfold. Um, there's a incredibly like, religious character to these games as well so when you think about the funeral games uh in homer's iliad you know it's a way of commemorating people and a lot of these like ancient practices still perdure and exist today so they would give cups um to winners of athletic events in the ancient world this kind of symbolizes life coming from death right you kill an animal cook it eat it and today you know if you win the Stanley Cup, you get the same thing, right? If you win a tennis tournament, you get a plate. Like we are quite literally doing the same rituals 
even if you know they're not necessarily as connected to the things they originally were. Um, so I think for them, you know, it's the center of the ancient world. I've taught on a study abroad in Greece, and I taught a sports and politics class. And you know, every museum you go to, it's like what what can you see that relates to sports? And there's something in every room. Like it's mm. it is really kind of omnipresent. Mm-hmm. And I, and I suppose that would relate not only to the, the sport itself, or let's say the larger cultural aspect of it, but also uh, today, you know, we can think of examples in the last five years where a certain athlete or a certain sport in and of itself or whatever else, even getting very specific, he's either looked at as like sort of a, um, almost like a sort of, how do I word this? Like, um, a stand-in or an athlete might be a stand-in or representative for a political issue, whether that's raised by the mainstream as, oh, that's a positive thing, or it's raised by the mainstream and discussed as a controversial thing, or perhaps even a negative thing. I'm, I'm sure you found that th- this sort of stuff traces back into history as well. That's not just a modern phenomenon where one athlete in and of themselves might be looked at as a symbol of things. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's it can also be used as a kind of rhetorics for political power. So, Alcibiades, for example, is like, I obviously deserve political power because I won the horse race. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, well, well obviously. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, yeah, I do think that athletes by their nature are very prominent people. And as such, there's various, you know, meanings, uh, political associations that um, tend to be tied uh, up with them. Mm. So on that note, with all that context, getting to the heart of that sort of first point in the book in that first chapter, um, walk us through why spectatorship is important. And you know, in both baseball and politics, of course, we'll we'll have this tethering going on the whole time through. But but why is spectatorship important? Yeah. So this is this is part of the book that might be a little controversial or people would disagree with. There's real big debates about spectatorship, whether it's a good or bad thing in the democratic world. So a lot of people think, you know, spectatorship is connected to a kind of totalitarian politics. Um, you know, I, I take this back to Plato as well. Right. The allegory of the cave is can be read as kind of um, an allegory against spectatorship. Um, we see a lot of events today in sports washing, um, the Nazi Olympics, right, is an example of spectatorship being used for totalitarian ends. Uh, and there's generally just fears of how people act and behave in a crowd. Um, and I, I definitely understand why people would view it that way. But I think it misunderstands um, <laughs> what people are like, what people are like in a crowd. So. Rancière instead uses the example um, of a student. And I think this is a really good example as someone who is a teacher, right? When I, when I teach to students, it pains me to say uh, they are not enthralled with everything that I say and absorb it all whole cloth, right? Like right. there is very little that I can do to like <laughs> change how people see or think about anything, right? Um, sometimes I can't even get them to do the reading. It depends. Um, so like what, what actually happens in a good classroom environment, if, if we take it to be a lecture is the students are listening, they're thinking, they're disagreeing, um, they're actively participating in it. Right. So I, the key point is when we're spectators, it is not a passive mode of being. It is an active mode of being. And we're often spectators more than we're not. So this is just a part of our everyday life, and it is a part in which we still maintain autonomy and power. 
Um, so that's true when we're watching politics for someone like Jeffrey Green, uh, who has a great book. I think it's called the eyes of the people. Um, and it's true when we're at the baseball stadium as well. Right. And we're not just lost in a crowd of other people. Um, and you know, the audience, the, the spectators, they do maintain power and agency. Would it be fair to say in, in not so many words that you think, um, that like the people who are either flippant and harsh on spectators, spectator sports, or, you know, for example, in politics, those who are like more hands off watching from the sidelines, et cetera. Is it, is it sort of the, the fear that that's sort of effectively um, synonymous with, with passivity in the sense of like, Oh, like, you know, whatever happens, they're happy with like, you know, they spectate, they're off to the side, the idea that they're going to be permanently removed from any action or care. Is, is that sort of another way to sort of say why people are sometimes harsh and flippant about spectatorship? Cause as you say, it is obvious when we watch sports that there are all kinds of spectators. Some are a little more passive, some are extremely active. Um, but would you say it's fair to say that some people are harsh on spectatorship because they sort of cast that blanket and basically say this is sort of a, a formula for permanent removal from the system, really? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I do think like that is something that we actually have like real data on. So like Alan Gottman uh, has done work on this, for example, where he shows that if you watch sports, um, you're more likely to be involved in other parts of what people would recognize as meaningful civic democratic life, right? You're hmm. more likely to vote, more likely to be part of associations. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a point Rousseau makes as well. Like, there is something good about being outside together in a community, watching a thing that everyone cares about that is also fun, right? It teaches you a mode of being with others, with your fellow citizens, that I think is positive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually a great way to bridge to the next section of your kind of pillar, which is the discussion of community. And again, I'll say this more than once in this episode, folks, uh, there's a lot I want to get in here with Thomas while we have us with him. Um, I'm sort of speeding past a lot of great stuff as we go along, but trying to hit the highlights. So he's got a lot more in spectatorship in the book. We definitely recommend you check it out. So, but I'm going to move us along just for that community discussion. So bridging from spectatorship into this community uh, situation, when we say baseball creates community or communities, what do you mean by that first specifically with baseball? And then how do we connect that metaphorically over to politics and what, what you mean by that? Yeah. So sport, I think is a pillar of a lot of different communities. I mean, you have like the Friday night lights phenomenon. Like if you're in West Texas, I'm sure that football is king high school football, especially. Uh, and the same thing happens with baseball. Um, we, as fans, if you're a baseball fan, um, you become part of a broader baseball community as well as the kind of smaller community of the team that you root for. Uh, often when people talk about their teams, they use language like, you know, we lost last night or we yeah. <laughs> played defense terribly. Right. So it really is a kind of a core part of one's identity for people who care a lot about sports. Right. You know, people get tattoos. Um, they it's it takes a lot of one's time and, you know, emotional energy. So. I think it builds community by getting people to actively identify and engage um, with this area of interest. So, um, you know, how those communities then relate to politics, I think, varies according to each different community. So there are, you know, fan bases that have notorious uh, traits. There are some fan bases that are notoriously like good pleasant places to be so it really just depends like i remember going to a phillies game 
and they design it so that the opposing bullpen is like fans can be directly on top of it and maximally obnoxious. <laughs> and I was like, this is like, I guess this is the classic Philly sports culture, right? It's it, to me, it doesn't seem pleasant, but you know, to, to each their own, I suppose. And, and like, this might seem like a silly point to emphasize, but it is truly something I kind of pulled out of the, the book as sort of a, a finer point, which is that on the connection between spectatorship and community, it seems that, you know, it can't really be overstated that, the, the community has to come from somewhere. I mean, you first have to be at the very least an active or curious spectator, if you will, then perhaps get more interested in something before you can build any meaningful direct community or outer community around that. So again, it might seem like a silly thing to reemphasize, but to me, it seems at least a, a core part of your point is that, I mean, the spectatorship is at the core of that element of community in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it can be a meaningful place for communities to be seen as well, like sub communities by a broader community. So, you know, they hold, you know, Star Wars night or whatever, pups at the park. <laughs> Those are kind of fun, silly events, but, you know, they have like LGBTQ night at ballparks and really important places for different places of the community, different parts of the community to be represented. Mm hmm like we we talk about community through baseball and your book explores that and so on but when we look at politics specifically um you know how do we think of community specifically related to politics because sometimes some people just think of politics as a very straight up individualistic thing and maybe you go to a town hall but other than that you vote you have a nice day goodbye kind of thing so when we talk about community what what can we emphasize when it comes to politics specifically that's similar to the, the baseball situation yeah so i think i kind of view it as taking a bit of the role of what tocqueville thinks associational life does in democracy right and, you know, people like Putnam, the bowling alone argument are concerned about the kind of decline of associational life for building communities fit for democratic governance. And I think sports, while it's not a formal association or community, although there are formal associations and communities and families right. um, related to it, I think that it kind of fills that function of creating a certain togetherness um, you know, willing to work together, understanding of being with others that is grounding for um, more, you know, serious, formal political parts of democratic life. And then these communities are a way in which people can watch politics and respond. Um, and then there, there can just be more like direct policy relating to communities and what we want to do. So, um I, I talk about uh, stadium funding in the book, which I think is an obvious way in which um, baseball interacts with real practical public policy. Often you have uh, teams and very rich owners uh, fleecing communities for way too much money um, so that they could, you know, I don't know, not spend any of their billions of dollars. Um, and then on the kind of more positive end, you see that like minor league stadiums are actually great investments in the community. They improve the community. Um, they improve their local area. They improve the economy. And so, you know, in, in that sense, it, it appears that the best community is built on these kind of smaller, smaller clubs and teams. Mm -hmm. Now, some will offer a critique of sports communities, specifically sports spectatorship fandom and 
the ecosystems around that and so on. And then, of course, in turn, metaphorically speaking, when we same idea when it comes to politics, some people will sort of critique communities around politics, ultimately, as, as being sources of sort of encouragement for sort of, you know, rabid partisanship and, and fandom and fanaticism, ultimately hackery, basically. So in both baseball and, of course, politics as well, leaving it quite open ended, though, for you, but just generally, are there also risks to community and negatives that people should, when they think about all this kind of stuff that they should think on as well, as well as the positives? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily trying to have a stance that baseball is always good. Like I think it's often not right. It's more that it is fundamentally political. So there can be, you know, instances of community being dangerous. Um, you know, there have been assaults of giants fans by Dodgers fans, uh, hooliganism, uh, in England, around um, football, soccer, whatever we want to call it, uh, you know, that is certainly prominent and can be um, a real dangerous negative force. I would say, I think practically, and especially around baseball, that's often just not how it is. Like you play 162 games, so nothing is that high stakes, right? It's nothing like an NFL game or anything like that. And usually, and this is just anecdotal, so I'm not making this claim, you know, incredibly <laughs> firmly. Right. You know, when I meet when I meet fans of other teams, uh, I think I mentioned meeting a Red Sox fan in Canada one time in Victoria, which I did, and we were, you know, hiking and ended up talking for two hours about baseball. Right. So we, I actually, I do not like the Red Sox at all. Probably my least favorite team. <laughs> and so he's this Red Sox fan. I'm a Tigers fan, and yet we have something to talk about, right? Because of the sport. So I think that it tends to unite uh, more than it tends to divide, but there certainly are, um, you know, less savory aspects of fan culture indeed. Right. And it's just a little early to do it, but I'm going to head into another sort of new section of conversation, if you will. So let's take our break now. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Thomas Bunting today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking to Thomas Bunting today. Thomas, I think the first half of our conversation really well laid out sort of a bit why you're interested in this topic. And then we started talking about your book in general. We discussed spectatorship community. And I want to turn to what is essentially the next section of your book and the section of our conversation today as well. This idea of equality and exclusion. So as you note, when we talk about spectatorship community, etc., we must also talk about essentially how in-groups and out-groups are decided and why that's important. In baseball specifically, you note at the beginning of this chapter in your book on equality and exclusion that baseball has always been about inequality. And you kind of, I think, did a brief mention at the beginning of a conversation, a teaser about 18 men running around playing baseball, etc. But, but long story short, illuminate me a little bit more on what you mean by baseball has always been about inequality. 
Yeah, so I think it's about um, who can play, who cannot, who can watch, who who can't, right? So um, particularly in its early forms, baseball was defined by certain people as, you know, a sport of white masculinity. Uh, And so you see that kind of fairly rigidly enforced. Um, There's always exceptions to to that right and there's when you're talking about a concept like race things can sometimes be fluid uh, but baseball maintained a very rigid uh, black white color line and so that right is reflecting of the society in which it operates um, and baseball then with integration um, becomes somewhat of a leader on on that before you know many other parts of American society and certainly American politics are able to integrate. And do you think that that sort of specific aspect of baseball, whether it's a, you know, racial issues, uh, you know, maybe perhaps now and, and into the future, we're going to be talking about gender issues as well. And gen- generally speaking, social issues and, and so on. Do you think that what ultimately happens is that baseball sort of reflects what's sort of happening in broader sort of, um, let's call it, it reflects the broader sort of social tensions, if you will, that might be happening in culture. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's that's the biggest thing. It reflects these things that exist elsewhere. But I do think it also gives people a chance to engage with these topics. Like, you know, people are not always comfortable talking about or thinking about race politics, right? I don't think that that is a controversial thing to say. Um, and yet baseball often provides people a way to do so. So I mentioned... Um, There was an instance when uh, a player was racially abused uh, by Boston Red Sox fans. Um, And the next day, once it was out in the news that this had happened, the other fans, the other Red Sox fans gave this player a standing ovation. Right. So that is that is a way of fans exerting real power to say, right, that's not something that we support. So I think that it can provide a platform for people to interact with something like race politics or inequality. Um, but yeah, it probably mostly just reflects the state of you know society and politics on those issues. As far as making people that are spectating these sports or in the communities around sort of, for instance, baseball as well, it, you know, you mentioned it gives them an opportunity to sort of in, whether they even know it or not, actually engage in sort of debates and sort of broader issues that are happening outside of baseball but sort of in like this microcosmic way i suppose not only are they engaging but they're also i don't want to stretch the point too far but it seems like there's also opportunities there if one just thinks about it that if one engages with the issue and works through it and comes out you know with a changed mind or something that you know you and i might consider a more favorable outlook on something like race or or gender anything else like that you know perhaps we can even say that baseball in that way or a sport has an opportunity for people to engage deliberate on the issue, but also maybe even, again, change their views in a broader sense as well, not just on baseball. One can imagine that, just for an example, if if someone sort of came out of watching Jackie Robinson with sort of that classic 20th century semi-non-racist opinion that's like, look, I don't care what color the guy is, like he can hit a ball kind of thing. And then who knows if, how that kind of thought process might connect to other parts of it. Mean, I don't want to stretch the point too much, but sort of that idea of changing minds and engaging with issues beyond baseball but first being presented with them in there seems to me a very powerful notion. Yeah. And there are definitely testimonials from players and fans, right. Who mentioned having their views of race specifically changed 
by playing with black players, rooting for black players. It's yeah, it's so if this is this, if this is a thing that's a core part of your identity, which we we're talking about identifying as a baseball fan, I think it's important to be able to root for other folks, right? People of different races and groups and ethnicities. And once you do that, yeah, I think it has the potential to change people's horizons and, you know, what they think of as who is a part of our community. Mm-hmm. And your next uh, section of the book talks about virtue, specifically generally public virtue, but just starting with the, the virtue part itself first. So baseball and virtues and specifically, how do, how do you think we connect? How do we connect baseball? I should say, and sports more generally, even to, to first virtue in and of itself, but, but then we can connect it to like broader public virtue. Cause first, like, you know, starting, starting small and working out big to say like baseball has a lot to do with virtue. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So this, this section's a little different because I actually do talk about the playing of the game. So one of the ways that baseball is connected to virtue is, you know, little league virtues, lessons that you learn in sport, right? There's a reason we have gym class. Um, we think that these things are good at cultivating important virtues for participating in society, right? These include things like hard work, um, you know, an ability to lose well, <laughs> I think, win well also, um, and various other things that you learn, right? Persistence. Um, I certainly learned a lot of lessons as a young person playing sports, um, and I think that's probably not a unique experience. Uh, this is, again, a kind of a callback to the ancient world. So um, arete is the Greek word, word we translate to virtue. It means kind of excellence. And, you know, sport and war were the chief places of cultivating virtues, particularly for them, something like courage. Um, baseball, I would say, also cultivates courage. If you've ever stood in a box while someone throws a 90 mile an hour ball at you. It's fairly frightening. So (laughs) you learn to be brave. Um, So I think that that is one of the first ways that we start connecting sport to virtue is that it happens when we're very young and it's something that we almost take for granted. Um, In terms of later on, I think you can see through the spectatorship of baseball and enforcement of standards of virtue. Um, So one such example of this would be like the steroid era, right? We have all of these people who are, you know, by any measure, the best players ever, uh, who simply cannot participate uh, in the Baseball Hall of Fame because we've deemed they did this the wrong way, right? And I think that that shows, right, that they, in a sense, have violated some of these core virtues that we hold, right? They didn't play the game fairly, Um, fairness, I think in the democratic world, especially is often thought of as a virtue, um, for roles, right? Fairness and justice are quite closely linked. And so I think you see there, uh, an enforcement of community standards of virtue through spectatorship of baseball. And actually, I just want to drill into that a little further because I'm glad you brought that up because that is one thing I want to talk about, you know, essentially the opposite of virtue, you know, vice, things like scandals and and how people react to that. It seems like, you know, we were talking about equality and exclusion before in that section, how people have an opportunity to sort of engage with these types of issues um, more often than not of a sort of scandal of unfairness or injustice sort of comes up in any sport and specifically baseball, uh, you know people seem to have an opportunity to engage with that discussion. And obviously nothing's a hundred percent ever, but most people seem to sort of come down on the side of condemnation of what is generally 
thought to be perceived as either some sort of um, either literally playing the game unfairly or if they find out there's some sort of kickback for a stadium to be built or something and there's a political scandal. Um, you know, you might have that one person that says, ah, I don't care. I mean, they, they, they screwed up the whole system and they were all politically corrupt, but we got our stadium. Like that's typically not the majority opinion. So it's interesting that it gives people an opportunity to engage with sort of vices and condemnation as much as it, as it is for, for cheering things on and recognizing virtue, it seems to me at least. Yeah, that that's definitely true. I I am living in Cincinnati Reds territory now, so there are pro Pete Rose people in the world. Uh, <laughs> I've I've shockingly met them, um, but yeah, and that was certainly a, a big thing in the kind of early era of baseball, which culminated in the um, Black Sox scandal, and baseball was kind of like thought to be this lower class immigrant kind of uh rowdy place right played by nefarious characters and you know people who drink and do all all sorts of bad things right and so after that you really see them trying to crack down on that and to change baseball's image uh and i think babe ruth is an intriguing character in that whole narrative and so for a long time yes the cardinal virtue or, or the cardinal sin uh the worst the worst thing you can do in baseball is to participate in cheating scandals of some kind, particularly around betting, right? Gambling. Right. Because um, the people who are cheating in those are not cheating to win, right? They're cheating, they're, they're trying to lose. And so one thing that's really interesting to think about in terms of virtue and the sport, and this is not something I have thought about a ton, so I don't have, you know, formed opinions on it, but baseball as a league, as an organization, Major League Baseball, has gone very quickly from the worst thing you can do is participate in gambling to undermine the kind of authenticity, the reality of the sport that we're playing to really kind of wholeheartedly embracing DraftKings, online gambling, and gambling in and around the sport. Um, To me, (laughs) it's surprising, right? It's certainly at odds with Um, the sports stance on these things before and it's kind of an intriguing question why 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 now is this something baseball is uh willing to embrace maybe perhaps and just thinking out loud here that it's it's less about the act of betting on something itself and more on who is doing it and how and for what reason maybe it's like sort of multi-layered virtue discussion as long as somebody's playing by the rules somewhere and it's not affecting the actual outcome of the game for example yeah, yeah, I think it can it can just be dangerous. It's like you're yeah, I, I'm not a fan of slippery slope arguments. Um, but I do worry that the slope might be a little slippery. Fair enough, yeah. And and on to the next section here. We got talk about technology and, and your book does a good job of that as well. So, you know, I actually historically speaking, I want to just kind of pick your brain a little bit on, you know, the idea of ever improving technology and its impact on baseball first and, and where we're at. And then we can turn to some other things. So, but, but long story short, why is this section important? I mean, like, you know, uh, people that might not be very, um, you know, uh, knowledgeable about baseball and so on and so forth and how their, you know, tech is, is involved and might just think well, what's changed. People chuck a ball, other people hit it with a giant stick. But, but in reality, there's, there's a lot to be said, not only specifically about the game itself, but more broadly speaking, the kind of tech around it. So for those actually not familiar with that aspect, could you give a couple of examples of what, what we mean by technology in baseball and why this is even important to consider and what it can teach us? Yeah, so we kind of have this technological utilitarian way of thinking about baseball that has entered into fans as well, right? So 
fans now think about the game in this kind of technological manner, seeking to maximize all of these outcomes. So like, to me, one of the most disturbing ones is, you know, wins above replacement, even though it's a stat that I do enjoy, right? You're, you're comparing players to, you know, some made up replacement level and evaluating them that way, right? It's like something like human resources, right? I don't know that it's great to talk about humans that way. Um, and I think when we think about sports purely in this kind of analytic way, we overlook the fundamental things about it that people love, right? We overlook the kind of emotion of the game, the beauty of the game, the aesthetics of the game. And we instead understand it simply as about winning and losing. Um, if, if baseball or sport was simply about winning or losing, there would be no Detroit Lions fans. And yet you're, you're speaking with one right now, right? Like there's, <laughs> there's no rational reason to be a Detroit Lions fan if sports is about winning, right? But it is about something different. And one really intriguing thing that's been coming up in a lot of different sports, like it's fun to watch this over different areas, is like... I'm especially thinking about um, soccer or football in the in the UK. You know, there are kind of like money ball ways of playing soccer that are just ugly and not fun. Mm. Right? And people watch it and it can work, but it's not good. Right. And the same thing has happened with baseball. You have this kind of emphasis on home runs. So people strike out a lot. They don't put the ball in play. They either walk at a home run or strike out. And that is not that exciting. Right. And so the funny thing that you see from people like the commissioner and people trying to change rules of the game is they want the game to look a different way. And they basically want to look, they want the old analog version of the game. They want to play like dead ball era baseball um, where we hit things in play um, and, you know, people get to actually participate more with the game. Whereas now it's kind of just, um, pitchers striking people out and people occasionally hitting home runs. Right. And, uh, and, and it's, and it's sort of interesting that you mentioned just a little couple thoughts earlier as well about the idea of, um, you know, specifically, specifically when it comes to fandom and spectatorship and community, that's it. Sports has to be about a little more than just this sort of mechanical and technological idea of it. Cause why would there be fans of losing teams? It's interesting that uh, it occurred to me, as you said that, that even fans of winning teams, like serious fans seem to police this as well. I mean, like when, for example, in football, when, whenever, uh, I especially remember this years ago too, when like, you know, the Patriots are going gangbusters in their season, there's even like some hardcore Patriots fan. They'll say, well, you know, we have this whole section of fans over here. They're just into this this year because they want to be with the winning team so even though they're on the same side they're not kind of thing so it's nice to hear that the fans themselves sort of at least in many uh, sports football baseball etc seem to have an idea that it is about a little more than that right yeah i mean fans you know love when their team wins but really fans love having been fans when their team loses <laughs> right yeah. like, i watched the tigers lose 119 games and so now if they ever win the world series i get to own that in a more authentic real way yeah exactly right. so to wrap things up here as we come to the, the final swing of our conversation you know the conclusion in your book talks about you know, baseball having these elements of storytelling. And what, what, what do you mean by that thought? I'd like you to elaborate on that a little further. And then how, how does that tell us anything about politics as well? Like when we kind of put all these thoughts together, this element of storytelling is interesting to me. Yeah, I kind of think that it is about, so I think I talk about it in terms of like meaning making and narrative, right? So 
a lot of meaningful memories, events in my life, you may not be surprised to learn, are <laughs> tied to baseball, right? I dedicate the book to my grandfather because we used to always play catch. Um, and, you know, I, I just have so many memories of connecting through him through the sport of baseball. Um, and I think that we often over, I, I think areas of life that we invest with meaning are inherently important and political. And I think you can see that in the kind of narrative structure of baseball. Um, people like to tell baseball stories um, because they're invested with meaning, right? We don't, no one would read a meaningless story. <laughs> we like stories that are filled with something important. And I think sport really lends itself to people kind of writing those narratives, creating those stories and investing them uh, with meaningful things from their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting connection to a last point here that I want to bring up. But, you know, as you said, who's creating these memories and who's really involved? And when we think of baseball, for example, do we really just mean owners and teams and so on? Or do we mean the, the broader sense of what it means, f you know, for the sport and the fandom? I want to kind of end our conversation, our main part of our conversation here with well, actually apart from your intro, which I thought was a nice almost concluding point when I went back and read it again. Um, you say, quote, democracy is not confined to hall halls uh, basically filled with elites and unseen by the masses. And then you move on to another thought. Instead, looking at baseball reveals how narrative and meaning emerge in everyday spaces. So I thought that was a nice sort of democracy and politics, you know, thought on the one hand and then the baseball thought on the other that you're basically saying in that sense, it's one and the same. Like it's important to realize that on, on both ends, we truly have narratives and meaning emerging in everyday spaces. It's not for intellectual political elites to just discuss it like intellectual political elite politics and same thing with the, with the owners and, and the quote elite in baseball, it seems to be your thought. Yeah. Yeah. So like the one thing that unites all of my work, which is kind of all over the place <laughs> is this real concern and, um, belief in uh, support for everyday politics and, you know, regular people. So I quote the Ernie Harwell thing, you know, and baseball democracy shines its clearest. Uh, and that's because baseball is a thing that regular people create, right? Fans create the sport. It's created by the people who attach meaning to it. It wouldn't exist. You know, if all of the baseball players playing today were half as good as they are, people would still be fans, <laughs> right? That's not what it's about. Uh, it is about fans. It's about spectators. It's about uh, regular people living meaningful lives, right? It's kind of a project about small things that matter uh, for me. And I think baseball can be counted uh, as one among many other such small things. And with that, I, I would like to move us to sort of our formal wrap up of the conversation. Our conversation is winding down here. So I'd like to bring us to sort of put a finer point on everything and bring everything for a full circle. In each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me ask you sort of the official last question, the wrap up question. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to us chat here about what baseball can tell us about politics or the political? In other words, if you wanted someone to remember one, two, or just a few things, if anything, from this conversation and how everything we talked about connects to broader political thinking, if you will, what would that be? What would you like to leave people with? Yeah, so I guess I would say democratic politics is about more than just formal institutions. Um, democratic politics unfolds in the everyday areas of our life as well. Um, and I guess on the baseball side, <clears throat> I think baseball is one of those places. 
uh, and potentially a productive and sometimes good place uh, for people to interact with and engage with politics. Great. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Thomas Bunting, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Yeah, thanks so much. I, I really enjoyed that. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.